0: So today is the day before we're bracing for Hurricane Harvey to touch down upon Houston and upon Texas, and we're sitting here at Torch in the Torch Center, and we're about to study Torah specifically Talmud. And I wanted to begin our discussion with um, an amazing Talmud that I read yesterday. So there's this thing called the Daf Yomi. Daf means a page. Yomi means daily. In 1923, they began a worldwide uh, international Jewish project where all Jews study one page of Talmud every day, thus completing the Talmud every seven and a half years. And now they're on their, I think, 13th cycle. And as it grows, there's more people doing it. So I decided, because they're learning uh, the Talmudic tractate of Sanhedrin, which I have a particular affinity for, I decided I'm going to join it for this particular book, uh, this particular tractate. And I noticed yesterday's, today's page is, is page 40. Yesterday was page 39, Lama Tess. And uh, it has, I, I think it's such a germane teaching for what we're about to experience in Houston. I thought I would share it. But then also I want to go through a lot of uh, the past 40 pages. There were <coughs> a few sections in the Talmud that I thought were very powerful. I wanted to share with you today. So the Talmud is talking about here. Uh, that the, is the Almighty happy or sad when bad people are decimated? And there is a verse in scripture, with the, or, with the decimation and destruction of evil, there's joy. We're supposed to be happy and delighted when bad people and evil ideas die. But what about the human component? Is there an aspect of uh, of sadness when bad people die? That's the question of the Talmud. And the Talmud goes back and forth and ultimately it quotes a verse in Exodus, Velo Karav Ze'el Ze'kol Halaya. It's talking about on the eve of the splitting of the sea. And we know this is the ending. This is the climax of a whole year where the Egyptians are systematically being humbled with plague after plague. And this is the The apex of it. This is the end game. They're all going to come into the water. The water split for the Jews. The water is going to crash down in very dramatic fashion on the Egyptians. But the verse says that the two sides didn't get close. The two sides were separated the whole night. And the the Talmud understands this on a very deep cosmological level. And it talks about angels. And angels are in the heaven. And every night and every day, there's angels. That go to say Shira, song before God. If you remember, in Genesis, Jacob has this encounter with the angel of Esau, and they're fighting the whole night, struggling. And in the morning, the man, which we know is an angel, he says, "I need, a, I need to go." Well, where do you need to go? You've been fighting and struggling the whole night. Suddenly, in the morning, you have to go. You got to bug out. What's the what's the matter? So Rashi quotes from the Talmud that this is, a, this was an angel and every angel has a turn when they're supposed to say on before God. And this angel says, I've, I've been waiting a thousand years for today and now I'm, I'm busy struggling with Jacob and he refuses to let me leave. So he says, he's pleading with Jacob, let me go. I need to say she or I need, I need to sing before God. And Jacob says, okay, sure. On some conditions, I'll let you go. You got to give me a blessing, change his name, the whole deal. But every there's always angels are always singing for. Of course, that is a theological idea that's a little bit hard for us to understand. What does this mean? We'll put that aside for the time being. But at the time of the splitting of the sea, the angels come to God and they say to the Almighty, We want to sing. And the Mighty says, No, now is not the time for song. Why? I want to quote the words of the Talmud. But O at that time, splitting the sea, Lomar The angels, the ministering angels, they said, "We want to sing Shira before the Almighty." The Holy One Blessed is He says, said to them, Yadai My handiwork is drowning in the sea. Vaatem Omrim and you're going to entertain the notion of singing songs of praise. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, these are the Egyptians. These are genocidal mass murderers. They're the ones who took all the Jewish boys and chucked them into the water. They're the ones who forcibly, uh, instituted slavery to our, ante- to our ancestors, to the Almighty's people, to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for centuries. These are bad people. Yet they have the Almighty's, uh, they're the Almighty's handiwork. And when they're suffering, from the Omari's perspective, maybe we could be joyous, but there is also an element of sadness. If you remember, on the Seder night, there's a few times where we, we delineate, we enumerate the, the ten plates, and there's a tradition to stoop a little bit of wine out of your cup. You say dam and then you scoop a little bit of wine out of your cup and you're diminishing your joy. And the idea behind it comes from this Talmud where, yes, it's a joyous occasion and we're happy that the Egyptians were totally decimated. But there is a wrinkle of sadness and there's a wrinkle of uh, of feeling the pain of those that are suffering, even the wicked suffering. So I was thinking, you know, we have this hurricane coming, And uh, yesterday I read uh, online that uh, Mark Zuckerberg said – that people are more interested if there's a dead squirrel in their front yard than if there's a dead child in Africa. And there's, there's we have an innate selfishness. We care about what matters to us. And now, of course, he was saying in the context of trying to give people on their feed on Facebook things that are more relative to their interests. Because, yes, uh, on absolute terms, of, of course, a child's dying. That's much more important than a dead animal, a carcass, a a roadkill. Of course, everyone agrees to that point. But relevance as selfish entities, and that's one of the core characteristics, negative characteristics, animalistic characteristics of humanity, we have a tendency to care what matters to us. And I'm thinking, you know, we're all getting ready for the hurricane. And everyone's going to buy uh, lots of water bottles. And people buy so much water bottles. And what about the next guy? Like. You're buying enough water for a, a year and a half in, uh, uh, in, in one of those um, hideouts on, underground, the nuclear bunkers. What about the fact that there's going to be 50 other people because of all your water that you're buying and they're not going to have any water uh, for the hurricane? It doesn't matter. i got to worry about myself. And here we see that the theme, evil people, people that are sinners and murderers. The Almighty says we can't sink. We we have to worry about their pain as well. And I was thinking, like, everyone's worried about their family and their homes and their business and their cars and all that, of course. And you should. And that's your responsibility. But I think as a city and for sure as Jews who have the load of humanity on our shoulders – we have to stop and say, what are we doing to help our neighbor? But not just our neighbor. Well, let's, if someone's in Corpus Christi, thank God it's hitting Corpus, not us. People are saying, right? Thank God. Yeah. Who cares about those people? Well, if you have a child in Corpus, then you start caring. But, yeah, oh, thank God I'm veered west. That's what everyone's telling me. Yeah. Oh, thank, we're, we're good. Well, how do we be good? And the truth is, you know, maybe we should even think about the people that are suffering all over the world. And we know that Moshe, Moshe, the Talmud tells us that Moshe, he was equivalent to 600,000 people. You put the Jewish people on one side of the scale, you put Moshe on the other side, they're equal. What that means is that he felt the pain of every individual, the same degree of pain that that individual felt themselves. I feel my own pain, other people's pain, I don't feel it because I'm selfish, because I'm cocooned. Because I have barriers separating me and my fellow. And by the way, those same barriers that separate me and my fellow separate me and God. Moshe is a great, great man. He, he expanded himself. He now has the expanded identity of the entire nation. 600,000 so on one side, Moshe on the other side, they're equal. When someone else feels pain, oh, oh, I really, by prayers, thoughts and prayers, right? My thoughts, no, what does thoughts and prayers mean? Thousand prayers is a thing that you say, but you don't really mean any. Moshe felt the pain of another the same way he felt. And I think it's a good lesson for us. And we saw it was yesterday's page in the Talmud. Uh, It's a very germane thought to think about when there's going to be expectations of a lot of human pain and sadness. It's important for us to also have a little twinge, maybe, of the suffering of others. a very powerful thought from the Talmud. Uh, People may ask, we have a finite amount of care in our hearts. Uh, and therefore, we have to allocate it properly. That's question number one. Question number two is that okay on a practical level? Suppose we had infinite amount of care in our hearts. Well, time and assets and resources are limited, and therefore there is a hierarchy. So you have to take care of your family first, people of your town then, people your brethren, Jewish brethren afterwards, your your countrymen, etc. So I think both both those are good are good points. However, I, I want to contest your initial assertion that. We have a finite amount of feeling in our heart. We have a soul. The soul, the soul comes from a different world. The soul is from the world of the infant, the world of the spiritual. Talmud tells us that the soul is on par with God and the angels in purity. What this means is, is that it's not subject to the same limitations that our body is. Now, you're right. On a practical level, most of us are much bo- much more body than soul. We're much more skewed in that part of our identity, and therefore we are limited. But potentially, right, we have within us the capacity, at least in theory, to identify as a soul. You identify as a soul, and suddenly you're not limited. You're in fact unlimited. How did Moshe be able to? How did he expand himself to 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 incorporate within him three uh, six hundred thousand? Of his Jewish brethren, the answer is because he became more of a soul, and thus he unearthed his latent capacity for unlimited compassion. That's number one. Number two, your second point actually answers your first point. The fact that Torah says this is the priority list, that presupposes that if you didn't tell me the priority list, maybe I should go around that. So yes, there are there are laws, but that. Is needed specifically because it is possible, at least in theory, for someone to be unlimited. So that indeed is accounting for the fact that we, as do- body-dominated, by default, at least body-dominated existences, and therefore with limited. Okay, then how do you allocate that uh, that that resource? I think it's a very powerful idea. I want to share with you another uh, teaching from the Talmud. Again, I want to go through these rapid fire because these are the ones that I was studying the past month and change. And I kind of made a few notations in my mind. These are ideas I wanted to share because I think they're such such powerful ideas. And we could go through one particular idea, of course, for a long time, but I wanted to go through a few of them. Okay, so the Talmud here is a discussion. Um the book of Sanhedrin uh deals with uh it begins it's it's laws of courts. Judicial process, uh, various different uh, court cases and the various procedures needed for them and how, who becomes a judge and who's qualified to be a witness and what, what do they do to the witness and how do they intimidate the witness and how do they cross-examine the witness and how do they verify and, and then punishments, et cetera. That's what it deals with, uh, the book of law. Now, uh, the question here, the Talmud questions is what is uh, – when you have a court, courts in session – and you are going to deal with a given case. And the case that is being discussed is the question of Ibur Shana. Iber means pregnant. Shana means year. The year became pregnant. No offense to the physique of any pregnant woman. But by definition, a pregnant woman becomes bigger. And thus, that's a colloquialism for when you have a year that becomes bigger. We know in the Gregorian calendar, every fourth year, you have an extra day, February 29th. Every 100th year, you don't, even though it's 25th cycles of four. And every 400th, you do. Regardless, that, that's a system to keep it compatible because as we all know, a solar year is 364 days, but also five hours and 55 minutes and change. And therefore, you have to balance it or else you'll start having September uh, or you'll have June in the middle of the winter, like they have on, uh, in Australia. That's how it works, the calculation, so to speak, with the uh, with the uh, Gregorian calendar following a solar year, which is much more simple. In Jewish law, in Jewish calendar, we have a solar year, but a lunar month, which throws all kinds of wrinkles into trying to make the system work. If you look at the Muslims, for example, they just have a solar, they just have a lunar month. And therefore, every year, if you look at it from the solar perspective, from the season, so to speak, the year moves up 11 days. Because the solar lunar month, I don't want to get bogged down with the math, but it's a lunar year, is 354 days, and thus every year is 11 days earlier in the cycle. And thus, you can have Ramadan in the summer, the spring, in the winter, the fall, etc. We are told that a few weeks over in the parasha, in the spring, you have Pesach. What this means is that if it, that verse caused a lot of headache because how do you keep Pesach in the spring, follow the solar year, but also have the lunar month? And the Talmud deals with the courts and the calculations in Book of Sanhedrin, primarily in the Book of Rosh Hashanah, of how to do all the math and all the calculations and all the uh, ast- literally astronomical uh, machinations to make it all fit and make it all work out. So uh, seven out of every 19 years, you have an extra month of Adar. And thus, if you add seven times 30, it's 210. If you lose 11 years times 19, it's 209. It works out. It's not precise because it's really a 247-year cycle, which is 13 cycles of 19 years. But that's details, right? But it used to be when the temple was extant and the Sanhedrin was in session, the Sanhedrin would always oversee the calculations and the debates as to what, when we're going to have a new month, a new year, when we're going to have an expanded year or expanded month, etc. The Talmud says, the halacha is, that who are the justices, who are the dayanim, who are the great scholars that are allowed to oversee and steward over a debate, a discussion, deliberations of Iber Hashanah. The Talmud says there's a law. They have to be invited They have to be pre-designated. You can't just have people show, okay, let's, oh, we need to talk about this, go to the house of scholarship and pull out random people. Okay, you guys are in charge. No, there's, you have to, it's formalized. People who are pre-designated prior, only those are allowed to join and to deliberate, to oversee this judicial question. And there's a story. And... There were seven people who were invited and were given the special invitation by Rabbi Gamliel. If you remember the name, Rabbi Gamliel, he was the Nasi, which means he was the, the, the head, the political leader and the religious leader of the Jewish nation right after the destruction of the temple. He was a direct descendant of Hillel and a direct uh, antecedent of Rabbi Judah the prince. And that line is called the Nassim, direct descendants of King David. They're like the kings without a king, a king without a monarchy. So he sends that invitation to seven people. And they get there, and there's eight. So there's someone there who's not supposed to be there. And this is a meeting of the greatest rabbis and the greatest scholars and the greatest justices, and there's someone who's not supposed to be there. So Rabbi Dumoulin gets up, and he announces, whomever is the one who is here without permission— seems clear that he didn't know who the people were who were invited. Has to get up and leave. And now's the problem. What do you do? And the person who gets up, who, who snuck his way in the air, think about how much shame he has to face up here. So Shmuel HaKatan, Shmuel the Younger, he gets up and he says, I'm the one who came without permission and I'm going to leave. And they say, no, you know what? You could stay. It's fine. Talmud says that in truth, Shmuel Khatan was not the one who came with that permission. But he did it to save face for the true uh the, the, the true culprit who did it. Now, Shmuel Al by the way, he has the distinction of being the formulator of the 19th blessing of the Shmona Esray. The word Shimona Esrei literally means 18. And that is a nickname for the Amidah prayer, because it's 18 blessings. Count the blessings, you have 19. Poor math. You think about a nation with so many Nobel Prize winners in mathematics, we can figure out how to count. And the answer is because there was always 18 until Shmuel HaKatan, this isn't the same individual, he devised the 19th blessing. Why did he do the 19th blessing? Because of the Jewish Christians. There were Jewish Christians embedded missionaries who were trying to cause all kinds of problems to the nation, and in order to weed them out, they make the blessing against the heretics, and they would have every suspect, everyone who they consider perhaps, potentially, is really a secret closet Christian, but masquerading as a Jew, they'd say, okay, why don't you leave the services? And why don't you say the 19th blessing out loud so we could all hear you? And the blessing says they're cursing, or we're going to denigrate and castigate and destroy, and the Almighty should really... Uh, obliterate these people. <laughs> exactly. And if the people go, well, I have, I have a cough. Uh, it's really hard for me. I can't do it. I can't leave the services. Okay. Next, they ask him again. And again, and if he, if he continues to resist it, you know that in all likelihood, he doesn't want to curse himself and therefore, uh, he should be pariahified, uh, and be forced to choose a side. That's what the Talmud says. This is the same Shmuel HaKatan And he gets up and he says, um, It's me. It was me, even though it really wasn't me. And the Talmud gives a list of stories, a very powerful story, I think teach teaches a very important lesson about not shaming others. The next story is where there was a lecture. And uh, again, this is a, a coalescence, a gathering of the greatest rabbis and minds of the time. And the great rabbi is giving the lecture, And there's someone in the room who had a very robust breakfast of garlic. And incidentally, elsewhere, the Talmud says that a husband and wife uh, should avoid eating too much garlic because garlic leaves really bad breath. And therefore, you as a spouse, you are morally obligated to not engage in behavior that makes you repulsive or makes you being repelled by your spouse. That's your job. Says a Talmud, a man should not consume garlic when his wife's around. A woman should not consume garlic when her husband's around or not too much. If you're on vacation or you're on a business trip, no problem. Knock yourself out. But otherwise, then that shows, that, again, the sensitivity that we have to have. We have to give up some things for our spouses. Either way, there's someone in the room who has this wafting aroma of way too much garlic and taken over the room. And what happens? So the rabbi, he said, he says, whomever ate the garlic, get up and leave. So what happened? Misha achal shum, yeitze, whomever ate the garlic should leave. Ahmad Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Chia was one of the greatest rabbis of his time. Beyatze, and he walked out, marched out the room. Amdukulam. Vyatsu and everyone else got up and walked out of the room. Again, we see this idea of doing, even claiming guilt when it's undeserved, to save face for someone else. Very, very important idea. And there's a third story. Just say it quickly. And I want to, just, and then I will bring a verse from last week's parsha. There's a third story about uh, again another gathering of rabbis and a woman frazzled. Watched into the room, and she starts screaming. And she said, "There was one of you became married to me through intercourse." Now, what does this mean? The Talmud tells us that there's various different ways to pitch start a marriage. You could do marriage like we do today with conveyance of something of value, like a ring or money. You could do it with a document. Or you could do it through intercourse. If you have intercourse with the intention of marriage, you get married. However, says the Talmud, the rabbis were very uh, disappointed when people did this. It, they looked very shamefully on someone who would use this method to uh, consecrate a marriage. So this woman walks into the room and all the rabbis are sitting there. And she says, one of you got married to me through this method. So the greatest rabbi walks up and takes a document of divorce and signs it as if he was the one. And then everyone else lines up and they all sign documents of divorce, again, to save face for the true culprit. And all this comes from a teaching in last week's Parsha. Last week's Parsha, we read about the very bizarre selection process. Sorry, was it this week's Parsha? It might have been this week's Parsha. This is Pasha. Sorry, Pasha Shoften. Very strange method of drafting. We know that uh, with the Vietnam War, everyone got a number and this and that. There was a lottery. How do you select two of the soldiers? Now we don't have a draft. Now it's only volunteer. Israel is the only country of 212 in the United Nations that has mandatory conscription of women. Other nations have mandatory conscription. Switzerland has mandatory conscription of men. A lot of of countries have mandatory conscription of men. Israel is mandatory conscription of only country. Either way, there's a draft. Sometimes there's a draft, sometimes mandatory conscription. What does the Torah do? So the verse in this week's Parsha describes that they gather all the eligible men together and they make announcements. Who was the one who got engaged but didn't get married? Who was the one who planted a field but didn't harvest it? Who was the one who planted a vineyard but didn't, uh, harvest any of the fruits? Get, leave. And finally, who is the one who's a little bit scared? Why are you steered? You steered because maybe you don't have the spiritual acumen to be a member of a spiritual army. Why? We know that the Jewish people, when they engage in the, the Torah's times, when they went to war, was well, they, they had God with them. And because they had God with them, they wouldn't lose. No one would die. And they'd be victorious every time. But God is only with them if they are worthy of such behavior. What if someone is not worthy of it? Then they're, then they're, then they're potentially susceptible to dying in war because that's what happens in war. Unless God gives you a magical shield, who knows what could happen? Who is the man, Hayyore Vaharach Levav, who is scared and has soft heart? Why? Say the sources. Because of a sin. Maybe you're saying, I don't know, I'm not so sure. I cannot be fully confident in my, in my spiritual, uh, uh, behavior. And my spiritual repertoire, in my, in my, in my spiritual prowess to say that I could be successful and I could stand the test, or you too also leave, it says the Talmud. Why do we say someone who got engaged and got married, someone built a house, didn't live in, someone planted a field? Why do we say all that? To provide cover for the sinner. Again, this powerful idea of how far we go. Think about this. The person who who did something wrong. Maybe they should be shamed. Let's have a public, public flagellation. Let's put him on the cover of every newspaper. Let's embarrass him. Let's rub salt in the wounds. That's what we like to think as our society. This is a no, 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 no. He ha- he cannot be part of the war. But don't, there's no need to publicize that. There's no need to aggrandize that. There's no need to, to, to make his shame known to all. Let's try to prov- provide him cover. Let's try to, don't do any more than that's necessary. Again, another very, I think, just poignant insight um, to our behavior. You know, and I think we could talk about the media uh, today. A lot of people are talking about media, all the media wars, whatever. But what's clear is they love to have a good teardown. They love when there's someone who, you know, tiger woods on top of the world and they love to see him wallowing in shame. With his behavior, they love that stuff. I mean, we love it. It's salacious, you know. It's exciting. It's 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 you know. We we get pleasure seeing other people be torn down. And here, the Torah is an entirely different perspective. Someone indeed may have something legitimate, and maybe they shouldn't be in the room. But provide them cover on their way out, right? Provide them dignity the way. I think it, it does dovetail with that idea earlier. Yeah, the Egyptians, maybe they're sinners and they're murderers. You know what? We still, even for those people, we have a modicum of sadness when they're, when they're, when they're punished. We don't relish in their downfall. There is an amazing teaching, again, for the Buddhist tradition, not, we're not quite up to it, uh, about Someone who does some one of the most morally lacking behavior. The Talmud's talking about bestiality. That's actually one of the capital offenses of Torah. And the Talmud deals with the question, what do you do with the animal? What happens to the animal? So the person they get executed, of course, if there's if there's testimony and there's witnesses, and the witnesses are cross-examined, all that is done. Person gets Executed. Well, what about the animal? says the Talmud, we kill the animal too. What did the animal do? Animal doesn't have free will. Animal didn't choose. Why? Shalom Yeheh. It's a Mishnah on page 54. You should not have this animal walking through the streets. And I would say, hey, see that little animal? You see that cow? You see that goat? You see that camel? You want to hear its backstory? This was the one... That, remember that guy who was executed for bestiality? Remember that person? This is the animal that he did it with. We don't want that. And therefore, in order to save face, so to speak, to not have excessive, excessive punishment on the perpetrator, we take the animal out of the equation too. Again, same idea. Someone who is guilty and guilty of a heinous, nefarious sin... Still, we don't just lather on more than necessary. And I think that's a, again, idea this, we could take it elsewhere in into Jewish philosophy. For example, uh, we talk about um, suffering and uh, theodicy. Why do bad things happen to good people? These are good questions. And maybe it's a whole topic to be discussed in a separate talk. And there's many talks. Actually, have a website at right, I spoke about it in the podcasts. But one of the themes that keeps on coming up in Jewish philosophy when discussing the question of theodicy of why bad things happen to good people is this idea that the Almighty's treatment of people that are worthy of punishment is never excessive. We never say, that the Almighty never says, and certainly we're told not to say this, oh, once someone is punished, once someone is evil, once someone is worthy of castigation, they're fair game. Let's add on. Let's pile on. Torah never says that. Someone who did this hor- horrific sin. Yes, they're guilty. You know what? But they're not guilty of something else. And they don't deserve something else. They don't get something else. And one of the ideas that we, uh, that we try to integrate, Torah tries to integrate into us when thinking about when bad things happen to us is the fact that whatever the Almighty does to us, It's for a purpose. That's idea number one. And idea number two, it's never excessive. Only what I deserve I get, not a smidgen more, not an iota more, not a scintilla more, nothing more. Whatever you get, you deserve. Whatever you don't deserve, you don't get. Another, uh, I guess it could be inspiring or just give us a good feeling uh, to know that the Almighty has our, you know, if the Almighty cares about the Egyptians and the Almighty cares about the sinners of grave sins, and we're, we're encouraged this idea of trying to, to, not to add on more than necessary, how much more so is the Almighty concerned when we, his children, when we are subject to punishment or to suffering of any kind? And the Talmud says that there is no there is no minimum size of suffering that registers. If someone says if someone stitches hand in his pocket and he wants to pull out a quarter, pulls out a nickel, oh, you got to stick it in their pocket again? That too it constitutes suffering on the barometer. Of course, it's very little but even that is calculated. You know, I would say what's the modern example of that? Everyone has credit cards today. So you pull out your phone. And you turn on your phone and you got to punch in the four numbers. But sometimes you kind of slip and you hit two numbers twice. Oh, you got to delete it or you got to start from the beginning. Even that's considered suffering and even that registers. And if you don't deserve that, you're not going to have that. And if you do get it, you should know that you're better off afterwards because the Almighty's punishing you in a very minor way, in a way that will minimize and mitigate the likelihood of you being punished in a bigger way in some other fashion. Just another powerful, powerful idea that I wanted to share. Shall we continue? Okay, so there's another Gemara, another Talmud, uh again in Sanhedrin. Uh on I'll go, go to this one, on page twenty four. And the question that it's dealing with is who are, which people are eligible to be witnesses? and which are ineligible. Some people, based upon relationships of, you know, you cannot testify for your brother or for your uncle or for your cousin, whatever. There's a whole list of people who are familiarly connected to the subjects. They can't testify with each other. Two brothers, they can't testify one on another. That's one law. Another law of someone who's really, really beloved, good friends. You know, their business partners, are friends since grade school, they're, he's not eligible. Someone who hates someone else is also not eligible. This is, of course, for logical reasons. But there's a whole list of people who are not part of normal society. That's the ultimate conclusion. That these are people who are not engaged with the same pain that everyone else is with regards to making a living. And again the, the the way and the list here is someone who plays with dice, professional gambler. I I had a friend in uh in yeshiva in Israel, whose brother Was a professional poker player. A very, very, one of the best ones in the world. And, uh, what I found out that a lot of poker players are actually very generous in charity. I thought it was like strange, like uh, people that are not generally viewed as being the most ethical, generally, some of course, not individuals, but generally as a society, as a group, not necessarily viewed as the, as what you would expect to be the most generous are actually I'm very generous, and I think the, the the secret lies the fact: well, if you make the money so easily, it doesn't. It's not as painful to let go of it. You didn't work, sweat, hard. You played a game of cards, and you were good. You were shrewd, and you were lucky, and you won, and that feels great. But you feel a natural inclination to give because the money is not so hard fought. And but the flip side is. When someone doesn't have that same sensitivity to know the pain of actually squeezing out a dollar bill and to making money, someone doesn't have that experience, they're less likely to be as deliberate when someone else's money is on the line. You know, if I if I am going to be a witness to testify on one person and that person could lose or make $100 dollars. If the $100 doesn't matter to me, I'm not going to do my due diligence. I'm not going to be as careful and therefore I'm not a, qu- a qualified candidate. And then it gives a list. Someone who lends with usury, people who make astronomical uh, profits, uh, subprime loans. Uh, in, in ancient times, you know, today like subprime is maybe 25% interest. Uh, in ancient times, it was in the hundreds, hundreds of times interest. Uh, like kind of those mob loans where they'll break your knees if you don't pay. Uh, but they, they, they're charging interest by the week, not by the year. Another example, of someone who can make a lot of money really quickly, someone who was a, a, a pigeon flyers, which means people that would race pigeons another form of gambling, and people that would do business on Shemitah. We know in Israel, there's a law called Shemitah where every seven years the land lies fallow, no one could do any work. So what becomes a very precious commodity at the time grain, uh, produce, and people pay a lot of money for it because you have to import it, the quality maybe is somewhat less, you're eating older stuff. So people that transgress Torah and to make a lot of money, like the people who go out now as we're preparing for a hurricane and are selling generators at three times the price or selling water bottles Ten times the price because people will pay for it. Those people make astronomical profits, but in a way that's not ethical. Says so the Talmud, those people, these people are not qualified to be, uh, to be witnesses. And that's the Mishnah. And on page 25b, the Talmud is asking, okay, suppose someone is a gambler and someone is a, one of those people who are disqualified. How do they become qualified again? What do they need to do to repent and to come around and to break this addiction, so to speak, and to become a member, member of society in a way that would allow them to be a good witness? And the Talmud makes a list here. And I, the, the bottom line is, is that what I think the Talmud is really teaching us here is how to break out of a cycle of addiction. Uh, I was speaking to my brother yesterday, not the brother who lives in Houston, but the brother who lives in Jerusalem, and he told me he's a a uh, he he's a therapist of sorts. And he says he has a, a student of his, a young kid who got sadly involved in in a lot of alcohol drinking. And the kid gets his license, and he is insanely drunk, and he's driving a car. And he smashes it, slams it into, thankfully, a parked car. And he gets out of the car. It's the middle of the night. It's 3 in the morning. There's no one around. He leaves his car there. He gets on foot and this is – he's not even sober at all and this is what he remembers. He remembers thinking after he's sobered up, he remembers thinking that, oh, this is really bad. I could be in prison for the next 20 years. He gets up. He starts running on foot, gets home, goes to sleep, wakes up in the morning and uh, goes to speak to a lawyer. The lawyer tells him, by the way, you made that was the smartest move you ever made. Because had they caught you, who knows what would have happened. And I don't want to talk about the legalities of what he did. But my brother tells me, what happened since? Eight months. That, that's eight months ago. In eight months, he hasn't touched a bit of alcohol. There was something about this experience that, it, that awakened him, that shook him up, that made him open his eyes. And he now is on a path to sobriety. Of course, he's probably still an addict, as they say. But there is some paradigm shift, a reframe, a reorientation, he's awakened. He's up, he's on the path towards healing. Talmud says, when someone is in this kind of behavior, they're doing something which is very profitable, and it, you get addicted. How, how do you break it? And it lists, it says, what they have to do is they have to awaken themselves. They have to do something drastic to change their their, their, perspective. And it describes, this is someone who lends with interest. Well, the halacha is, you now lend with interest to a Jew. But to a non-Jew, you can lend with interest. That's the law. Of course, it doesn't mean you force someone to take with interest. If they want, they could. You're Jewish brethren, you lend for free. If someone lends with interest to Jews, they're disqualified to becoming a witness. How do they once again reactivate their qualifications as a As a Jewish witness, so of course they have to stop their behavior. They don't lend with interest to Jews. They they have to also stop lending with interest to non-Jews. Well, that's permitted. Yes, but you're an addict. An addict needs to learn how to, this is the words of Rashi, you have to forget the word. The idea has to disappear from your mind. The, The whole notion of lending with interest you have to now, you're now an addict. Therefore, you have to go much further than someone. Someone who's casually drinks some wine or drinks some alcohol, they could have the alcohol. Someone who's an addict, you can't even have one drop. Because once, once, once you have the drop, you could go back to the terrible behavior of your. Similarly, here, and there's a list. I, I thought it was such a powerful idea of, of how when someone is in a destructive behavioral pattern, how they have to kind of stop waking up take all their tools of the trade break them the scribes. there used to be a a a tool to make the 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 pigeons run faster to race faster and it was this uh, wooden tool you have to take it and break it you have to show I'm out and you have to kind of commit yourself to it you have to do something drastic that is going to change your behavioral pattern and i was thinking you know, we just started this week, the month of Elul. Elul is the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah. At the end of El, the next month is Tishrei, the first day of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And traditionally, it's a time of self-examination and trying to think of who we are and what we're doing for, what we're living for, and trying to kind of get our spiritual fitness in order. This is, that that's the time. And one of the laws... We know that the name of Rosh Hashanah is Yom Teruah, the day of the shofar. And during this whole month of Elul, after Shachras, after the morning service, they actually blow the shofar for, for a little bit after every morning service with the exception of Shabbos. And there's a famous Rambam, teaching from Maimonides in the laws of Chuva in the book of Mada. The first of the fourteen books of the Yerachazaka of the Mishnah Torah, and the Ramam says, "Why do we blow the shofar?" And famously, I don't have the words in front of me, but he starts off by saying, "Af al shofar or Even though, well, why do you blow the shofar? Well, because the Torah says so. Simple. Don't ask questions. That, that's the real answer. But still, there's a remez. There's a hint. Kolomar, as if to say, the shofar is telling us, "Uru yeshenim m'shenaschem. Wake up." from your sleep, those that are sleeping, right? And those that are engaged in slumber, awaken, stir awake, get sober. It's the wake-up call. The shofar is the wake-up call. It's a thing to try to stir us to re-examine what are you living for, right? Examine your ways. The And remember your creator. That's the idea of Rosh Hashanah. That's the idea of a shofar. The idea is, is that Life, what are we living for? We know that we have a body that is the clock is ticking. Who knows how long we have? We hope we live a long time, but we know it's finite. What then? Right? We, where is our prudence? We prepare for our retirement. You got to make sure you match that your 401k and your Roth IRA and you, all that stuff, and that's of course responsible because. 65, you're going to retire or 70 and you lift 100. How are you paying for that? But you know what else we need to prepare for? Our real retirement. When someone dies, that's when their retirement really starts. And that's your soul. What about the 401k for our soul? Are we maximizing that? Are we making, pushing it and get, getting the matching? Right? The matching. You do a so You got to match. Are we doing that as well? That's what that's what the Rambam says. The chauffeur is there. The hallowed sounds of the chauffeur are designed to awaken us. Why don't we just ask the question? It's Elul. Ask the question. The answer is yes. You ask the question, but you know what? You can ask very important questions of someone who's sleeping. You can ask very important questions if they don't hear you. It doesn't matter. The chauffeur is there to awaken us. I think it's a, again, a very, a very practical idea. Of course, it's a big idea that, um, is expansive and broadly applicable. But here the Talmud shows us that there, there's this path, uh, that we can and maybe we ought to navigate in our own lives. Of course, thankfully, we're not addicts and we're not professional gamblers, but everyone has their area of life. Oh, we're not, we're not perfect. And the only way to change is to make a plan and to execute it. And here I think the Talmud does describe for us at least a a framework for how this has to happen. There has to be some inspiration. There has to be some awakening. There has to be some chauffeur. Hopefully it's not a car crash. Uh, hopefully we don't need to do something too drastic. But just get that attention before anything can happen. You have to be aware and awakened and exposed for even the potential of the inspiration to uh, to enter, of course, once you're inspired—that's step one—you have to actually live by those new ideals. Like when I, there's this path to inspiration. Once you have the path to inspiration, you have to turn that inspiration into the perspiration, where you're actually working. And you're actually committing and you're actually living by those ideals of the inspiration and then you kind of have the concretization where you take the new behavior, newfound ideals and you make them permanent. You make them part of your fabric. You actually acquire new habits that now you can take with you uh, for the rest of your journey. How uh, much time we have left here? A oh, little bit. A little bit of time left. Uh, okay, so one more, one more quick thing we'll, we'll do and then, uh, and then we'll. Oh, we'll do, let's do this with this one thing here. The mission on page 37 is talking about what happens when you have two witnesses that come and they make a accusation that uh, a third party, or individual, a defendant is guilty of a capital Crime And the Jewish law is that when someone is on the hook, potentially, of a capital punishment, we do everything we can, the court has to save them. We have to do everything within within the power of the rules to try to find acquittal for the defendant. And the Mishnah describes that we have to cross-examine them. But we also have to intimidate them. We have to make them realize that this is very severe. They Once someone is executed, there's no way to bring them back. And they tell the witnesses, for example, one of the things they tell the witnesses is, when you kill one person, you're not killing one person. You're killing him and his descendants and their descendants and their descendants and their descendants until forever. You know, and you, have, you could have one antecedent that has a million or even more, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Great you sure you want to take this on your shoulders? If you're lying, you're not just killing one person, you're killing perhaps millions. And then they talk about Adam. right? Adam's the first man. And we're all descendants of Adam, so to speak. Now, what, happened, what would have happened if someone killed Adam? Well, none of us would be alive. And we know uh, when uh, uh Cain and Abel, so the Almighty tells Cain, achicha the bloods, plural. It's not it's not damachicha, the blood of your brother. It's the bloods. What do you mean the bloods of your brother? Not just your brother's blood that you killed, your brother's children they would have had potentially, his grandchildren, forever. All that is linked back to your original behavior. And therefore we tell the witnesses, be very, very wary. Make sure you're saying the truth. And nothing – you're not embellishing the story and you're certainly not making it all up. And then uh, they, the the court in their intimidation, they launch into a, a teaching about the value of one person. And here we're told, for example, that if someone saves one person, it's as if they save the whole world. If someone de- destroys one person, it's as if they destroy the whole world. That's in the Mishnah on page 37a. In Sanhedrin, the third, fourth chapter of Sanhedrin. Incidentally, like a lot of great Jewish ideas, it was plagiarized, and it shows up in the Quran as well. The Quran shows up in the seventh century. Mishnah is written at the end of the second century. So uh, we're happy that our ideas uh, are copied. It's the sincerest form of flattery. It would be nice, though, maybe give us a shout out. Uh, but anyhow, and then there's the famous line because every Adam was one person, and the whole world's created for Adam. Therefore, the whole world is worthy. For one person, you kill one person, you destroy a whole world, you save one person, you uphold a person, you save the whole world. Which, of course, amplifies the stakes of testimony. And then it says, a very famous line, Therefore, and this is not what they say, but it's talking to us, who are reading this Mishnah, Lafitach, chayiv kol adam lomar, everyone needs to say, bishvili Nivraha olam. the world was created for me, because if I'm one person, Adam was one person, the whole world was created for Adam, the whole world could have been created for me, and therefore the whole world really is for me. The fact that there's billions of other people that just happen to have showed up in the same world at the same time, that's a nice coincidence. But the world would be enough for just me, and therefore the world was created for me. Very uh, empowering idea that the, that the Mishnah says. And lastly, just one more quick thing. I don't want to go too much over time because then you won't come back next week. And I really want you able to come back next week, um, but the Talmud, because it talks about Adam, it gives a whole bunch of teachings about Adam, and I'd like to go through them all. But just one idea: Why was Adam created on Friday? Specifically, you look at Genesis. It starts off day one, day two, day. When does Adam show up? All the way at the end of day six. At the end, of the, he's the last thing that's created. So why, if Adam, man, is important? Man, of course, is important and is the subject, really. The, 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 uh, the goal of all of the creation. Maybe he should have been first. That's the Talmud's question. The Talmud gives four answers. i we'll go through them real quickly here. Uh, answer number one. Had man been there beforehand, heretics would say man helped God. Shows us how depraved we can be. It's possible for man to be so deluded to say, "Oh, Adam was there on Monday. Oh, Adam helped God on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday." Answer number one. Answer number two. What if man gets haughty and arrogant? I'm the king of the world. Look at me. You know how you put him back in his place? The mosquito came before you. The fruit fly. It was here before you. You're not so special. And so we have this dual ideas we're supposed to take with us. The world's created for me. I'm the end goal. But also, I shouldn't get too haughty. I have to keep that other item in my pocket, so to speak. The fact that I'm not that special. The mosquito came before me. There's two more quickly. Now, today, today's the day before Shabbos. Uh, One of them is that the – so that Adam should right away be ushered into a mitzvah, Shabbos. So you trade him on Tuesdays. he got to wait three, four days to get the Shabbos. And lastly, it's as if you have a banquet. A king meets a banquet and he has a guest. Well, first, you get everything in order and then you invite the guest. You don't invite the guest three days before where everything's still being put together. Similarly, the man created the world. It's a banquet for us. And therefore, because it's we're the subject, we're the invitee of the banquet, therefore, we have to uh, have everything ready, and then we show up. Uh, incidentally, uh, we had the big eclipse a couple of days ago. Uh, the Talmud in one place speaks about the eclipse or about the notion of eclipses, and the Talmud invokes this idea. Imagine you have a king, a king who invites his subject to a feast, and there's this bright light, a lantern, that the people can enjoy the feast and the king covers the light. It makes it harder for people to enjoy it. Thus, the Talmud says that an eclipse from a kind of a deep tabulistic idea is actually not a good symbol. Regardless, some interesting lessons about Adam. I think each one of them can be taken on its own merit, each one of these four reasons why Adam created on on Friday. Uh, Some very powerful ideas about caring for others, about uh, avoiding shaming others, Uh, about uh, letting others save face, uh, about dealing with addiction. Just really beautiful, deep, profound insights from the Talmud. I hope everyone has a safe and uh, good Shabbos. And uh, we should keep in our prayers not only our family and our Jewish brethren, but also people in Houston, people in Corpus Christi, of course, our brethren in Eretz Yisrael in Israel. Hope everyone stays safe. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to next time.